Well, we continue our studies uh, this morning in uh, Genesis, and we come to chapter 13. Um, and we're going to read the whole chapter, Genesis uh, 13, 1 to 18. And uh, Moses tells us, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him, into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord, and Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At the, time of the Can- at the time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. And Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northwards and southwards, And eastwards and westwards. For all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. So that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the land and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, again we ask that you'd give us understanding as we look at your word. And we thank you that you delight to to help us and to grow in our love for your word and for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think it's a, perhaps a general truth to say that the, the moments of greatest spiritual achievement occur not after the highs of the Christian life, uh, but some, often the lows of the Christian life. Um, and I think we see something of that in this chapter the, uh, this morning. At the end of chapter 12, you may remember, we looked at it last week, um, Abram had left Egypt somewhat chastened. 
uh, he had uh, gone down to Egypt because of famine in Canaan. That's, there's nothing wrong with that uh, in itself. Uh, he was in the hands of God and in the providence of God. It seemed the right thing to do. Um, but as he, you may remember, he, as he went down to Egypt, he had hidden the fact that he was married to Sarai, his wife. And uh, he had, Abram had feared for his life uh, because of his wife's extraordinary beauty. Uh, he feared that uh, he would be killed and his wife taken. And so he claimed that Sarai was his sister. Uh, but of course news gets round and Pharaoh found out uh, about the beauty of this unusually beautiful woman that had come within the kingdom. And uh, he thought, well, I'd, I'd like to marry her. And he took her into his household. And so uh, a little lie that may have seemed innocuous to Abram at the time became a terrible uh, dishonor to, to the marriage, to his, to his wife, Sarai. And um, uh, Abram had left somewhat chastened. Um, Pharaoh found out about the deception and sent him out. Um, and it seems, I think, with, uh, with men with orders, <laughs> if you notice that, in verse 20 of chapter 12, and Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. It's almost like he had a, a military escort back out of the country, back to the Negev. Um, but we remember that in the midst of all of this, of course, God's promises are still operative. Uh, God had promised to Abraham in the early part, verses of Genesis 12, uh, promises that were of great historical significance. Um, and Abram doesn't see all of it necessarily, but he, he understands it's, it's bigger than himself. And the Lord intended always to keep his promises. Um, and so he, he acted to bring about. You notice that he, you remember that he, he afflicted, the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in verse 17 of 12. And his house with great plagues because of Sarai. So God intervened at that point. Uh, God, see, God knows the bigger picture. And he's uh, acting to preserve his promises. And uh, so Abraham uh, leaves. Now we see that Abraham therefore has a... There's no, no, no reason to doubt that he believed the promises of God that he'd received. But the... The implementation, if you like, in his daily life uh, was actually somewhat lacking. It's almost like he had taken the promises and he had kind of parked them on the mantelpiece and kind of thought, well, I can sort this out myself um, and I can kind of help God along a bit without really trusting God. And at no point do we see in chapter 12 that, that uh, Abraham was actually seeking the face of the Lord. Um, but God has acted in faithfulness uh, to his chosen one Nonetheless, and so now we see in chapter 13 something of a change that has happened to Abraham. He's chastened, um, he's been learning a great lesson, and uh, he's been learning what it means to, to walk fully with God um, in all the difficult circumstances of life, resting on the promises of God. Um, and now he returns from from Egypt to the Negev again in the southern part of uh, Canaan. And he comes to the altar that he had set up before and he worships God. There's nothing in chapter, the second half of chapter 13 about him worshipping in Egypt. 
But now he comes back and he worships God. And now he is resting on the promises of God and acting with patience and faith. And I think in that act of, of worship, he is once again consecrating himself to the promises of God. Recognizing the, the sacrifice that has been made, uh, that he has offered in sacrificing on the altar, that his sins needed to be dealt with. So in this chapter, out of Abram's failure, comes some remarkable steps of faith, which ought to be a great encouragement to every one of us. uh, Because no matter how greatly you or I have sinned in the past, and though our personal histories might be dominated by terrible decisions that we have made, sinful decisions that we have made, the great truth is God does not give up on his promises to his people. There is always a way back and a way back to restoration with God and fellowship with God. When you put that past life behind you and you come back to him in repentance and faith, that is the kind of God we have. His promises are always yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Didn't we just read that in 2 Corinthians chapter 1? So first of all, let's, let's notice this, that Abraham returns to worship. So the, the geographical journey is, uh, is that Abraham comes back to where he was in chapter 12, verse 8, to that place between Bethel and Ai. And what's interesting is that uh, about this narrative here from Moses, uh, Moses is telling a story here, is that Moses calls Bethel, Bethel. Now why, why is that a strange thing? Uh, because Bethel doesn't actually get the name Bethel until chapter 28, when Jacob goes there and is called the house of God. It's a place where Jacob has that dream about the ladder going up and down from, uh, to and from heaven, the angels going up and down. And it's described there as the gate to heaven. And it's there that uh, it's called Bethel, uh, the house, Beth, El, God, Bethel. And uh, Moses here, I think, is writing about Abraham and calling, a, calling the place Bethel, the house of God, because Moses is giving here a hint uh, about what is happening, that Abraham is returning to the house of God. When he comes to this altar that he set up before, he is coming to the house of God, to the gates of heaven, in this altar. And that after he has entered into this most dreadful of of sins, where not only has he deceived, but he has abandoned his covenant wife for the sake of his own personal safety. And he has been in a as it were, a far country geographically, but spiritually he has been in a far country, far from God. And now he's returning, he's returning to the house of God and calling upon the name of God. He is, he is worshipping God. And he uses that altar that he built before, comes back to that same place. He makes the sacrifices, he calls on the name of the Lord. 
In other words, he is expressing his need to God uh, for God. And in doing so, he is repenting of his past sins and consecrating himself once again to God. And he is doing so with his whole heart. What a, what a contrast between this uh, and the previous episode in Genesis 12. Where he seemed to, he just took practical steps to avoid the famine. And not an inkling that he called upon God while he did it. And now it's like Abram's come home. I think it's worth just thinking about how we respond to crises. I know it's kind of late in the day to be talking about the, the effects of the pandemic and how we have reacted to the pandemic that we have had over the last couple of years. But how easy it has been, I think, for many Christians across the country, not just here, but across the country, to say, I'm going to, yes, I believe in all the promises of God, but I'm going to take practical steps to avoid meeting with other Christians. And I'm going to take, you know, this is my rational decision about what I'm going to do. And instead of putting fear aside, instead of seeking God, many Christians have simply said, yeah, I'm just going to isolate, keep myself to myself. It's worth thinking about all these things, isn't it? Any crisis that comes into your life, don't we automatically swing into the rational mode where you say, I've got to solve this problem, this problem, this problem, instead of coming to God and coming to God with God's people and seeking the fellowship to help us? There's a lot to learn here from Abram and his faith. Now Abram's come home. And how we need to come home as Christian people. This is a man who had received a call from God to whom God had made huge promises. He had repeated them. But he had thought he knew better. And he did his own thing, leading, it, leading him into all kinds of mess. But now he's come home. Friends, the, the true home of the man or woman of God or boy of girl, or girl of God who has been called of God and who has come to know God. The true home is to come to the place of worship. This is home. This assembly is a taste of home. And that doesn't mean come to a particular geographical location. Jesus changed all that in John chapter 4. It doesn't matter which mountain you go to, or a mountain at all. It really doesn't matter. But you come to the eschatological mountain of God to be with God's people, along with all God's people. And you see, the thing is, the thing about a, a godly person, a, a person who has been saved by the grace of God, is their, their heart and their disposition towards God is to, is to seek God. Is to seek his face, to, to long for him, to, to want to cry out to him. 
This is what we do in worship, isn't it? We, we sing God's praises. We, we sing prayers to God. We say prayers to God. We read the word of God and we want to respond to the word of God. To cry out to God. Do all that you have promised Lord, give us strength to obey the things you have commanded us. We come home. And we should do it together. You know, when, when it says Abraham sacrificed at the altar, I have no doubt. I don't think we should read this as Abraham by himself and his family just having doing something else over here. <laughs> no, if the head of the household was worshipping at the altar, the whole family was there, the whole household, everybody. We all joined with this. And you see this all over the the Old Testament and the New Testament when the people of God are gripped by a sense of repentance for past sins and desire closeness to God. What do they do? They gather together for worship. To cry out to God together. That's what true Christians do the world over and the centuries over. No, we don't need to make actual sacrifices. Why? Because Jesus Christ has made that once for all sacrifice. So all we do is we remember the sacrifice that Jesus Christ has made. We call on God in prayer. Call on God in song. Confess their sins together. Consecrate themselves afresh to God. And say, I need you. I want you. I love you. Thank you that you have been faithful to me even when I have been unfaithful to you. Isn't that a great encouragement? We see it all over the scripture. This is the normal Christian life. Do you get a sense of this? If you do, you will, you will realize just how alien it is, alien it is to the Christian life that there are people who profess to be Christian and yet seem to have no particular desire to worship with God's people. It's alien doesn't belong. That attitude doesn't belong. Or they just seem to have a limited capacity to want to meet with other Christians. Maybe even furnish themselves with arguments why they needn't come to worship or they shouldn't come to worship. You see how weird that is? It's just weird. I mean, honestly... (laughs) Can I just express my sense of being weirded out by this? It's so strange. It's like we have in, in the Christian church across the land a bunch of people who want to be like Abraham in Egypt using their own limited reasoning to justify what they're doing what they prefer to do. Without understanding that true fellowship with God creates a life within that produces an instinct in the heart of the believer that says, I must worship God. I must. I've got to be with God's people. You see, of course we have to wrestle with immaturity and the bad habits of the old life. These things will always conspire to try and keep us away from uh, the worship of God. But the life and the new promise that we have in Christ, that will always drive you to be with God's people. 
So Abram returns to worship. The second thing here is that Abram becomes a a peacemaker. Uh, The story moves on from verse 5 and provides something of a test for Abram. If you remember, one of the surprising things about Abram was that though he was in the wrong, um, the Lord seemed to prosper Abram. Uh, So you look back to chapter 12, verse 6. He says, Abram passed through the land... Sorry, that's the wrong verse. Uh, 16, (laughs) I misread it. Um, uh, For her sake, he he dealt... So Pharaoh dealt well with Abraham, and he had sheep, oxen, male male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. You see, all his possessions seem to kind of multiply um, under the providence of God. Uh, So when he returns to the Negeb, he returns rich. So verse 2 of 13, Abraham was very rich, living in uh, in livestock and silver and gold. Uh, And Lot as well is with him. And uh, he seems to have... uh, possessions as well, though not quite as much. He doesn't seem to have gold and silver in the same way. Verse 5, Lot, who went with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents. Uh, so, but both of them come back well endowed, if you like, uh, with possessions. And of course, trouble eru- erupts. Uh, the flocks of each man are so big that there's strife between their, uh, their kinsmen. No doubt there's not enough water, there's not enough pasture for both herds, uh, sets of herds. And there's a sort of, this town ain't big enough for the both of us kind of attitude, and therefore they need to separate and split. And uh, the Canaanites and the Perizzites are there, verse 7 says that, and they are also competing for the same resources. Um, And so wars, you know, wars start over this sort of thing, over scarce resources. So it's a test for Abraham. What's... What's he going to do? I wonder how you'd react. Uh, I'd imagine we we might want to enter into property rights and uh, legal settings and so on to assert our rights and this and that. But it's not where Abraham starts. Abraham starts with where they are. And he says in verse 8, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Literally, we are brothers. They're not actually siblings, but they're related to one another. And uh, what matters here is our unity, our connectedness, and therefore we should be able to work this out. So Abram comes into this as a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers, said Jesus. Abram here is a peacemaker. And so with amazing generosity of spirit, And great wisdom, he gives Lot the choice to go whichever way you like. You go whichever way you like, and I will go whichever whichever way is left. And what's interesting here is the attitude, the difference in attitude between the two men. Look at Lot. Lot takes Abraham up in the offer. He doesn't bounce it back. He looks around. He looks at what is best, and he sees the Jordan Valley. Uh, It looks fertile. It looks like Eden to him. Uh, It looks like the garden of the Lord with all its fresh, vibrant beauty. And uh, and it's like Egypt. It's like the Nile uh, and all the fertile uh, region around the Nile. It's almost like he, he wanted to be back in Egypt. He says, yeah, I'll take that. I'll go for that. And so he makes his way 
eastward. But then notice what Moses throws into the narrative here, verse 10. He throw, it's in parenthesis here, in brackets, at the end of verse 10. So this area that Lot has taken, he said, this was before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And then in verse 13, Moses tells us, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Uh, Moses is giving us a warning there that Lot has led with his eyes, but actually he's walking into a danger, a danger of great sin. An environment of great sin. And we'll see how badly this works out for Lot in chapters 18 and 19 when we get there. There will have to be a rescue and he will be left with nothing. So that's Lot. What about Abram? He's actually really content about this situation. He's happy to go west if Lot goes east. And it's not insignificant, I think, that this restfulness of soul comes as a result of having got right with God and come to worship with God. Not in the sense that worship is therapy. Not simply that he has got an inner peace. But now, rather he has remembered the promises of God... And his disposition disposition now is one of dependent faith. And so he is living by faith, not by sight, as Paul tells us uh, we should do. It's not fatalism. You know the kind of fatalism. Who knows what God is doing, but I'll just kind of run with it. It's not that kind of fatalism at all. He rests on the promises of God. There is a sense in which Abraham has a kind of poise about him. You know, a spiritual poise about him. Do you know what I mean by poise? Physically, it can mean how you hold yourself. You know, uh, there are certain people who carry themselves well uh, and immediately exude confidence. Uh, depending on how they carry themselves. You know, if Susan always gets onto me that I, I kind of slouch my shoulders when I'm preaching. <laughs> it creates the wrong picture. Um, so I try my best. Uh, but, you know, there are other people who, who have a poise about them. You know, they, they, they stand well, they exude authority and so on. There's a kind of poise uh, about them physically. But here I mean a, a kind of poise that comes about with spiritual characteristics. Uh, it may include your physical bearing, but it's, it's really your spiritual bearing. The way you carry yourself spiritually. It is that you don't flap about things. You know, there's a quiet assurance uh, that exudes from you, no matter what's happening around you. Uh, because you're content and you're resting in the will of God. There's a quiet conviction about you and people know, as it were, where you stand about things. So in the face of some looming problem, there is calm as you, as you walk with God. That's what I mean by poise. You know, sometimes people can express their faith using the right words, but their body language is different. They can express a nervousness or an impulsiveness 
or an irritability or something. They do not have a poise about them. This is what Abraham has. He has this contentment in the will of God. And so you can see the value of repenting of your sins and having that as a habit of your life. Of remembering God's grace, of giving yourself to God again in public worship. And all of this changes you. This is why it's a me- we call it a means of grace. It's God's grace, how God operates, uh, the means that he uses to bring his grace into your life. That as you do these things, he seems to change you into somebody that has a quiet assurance that comes from fellowship with God. So he becomes a peacemaker and he's at rest. So Abraham's a man who t- returns to worship with God. He becomes a peacemaker and a rest in God's promises. Thirdly, the promises we find here in this story, the promises are renewed and more worship is given. So Abraham and Lot, they part company. Lot goes to the east, Abraham to the west. Uh, an amazing thing happens. Uh, do you notice? Verse 14, the Lord speaks. The Lord says to Abraham, he comes to Abraham with words of assurance. Uh, So far, Abraham has not used his eyes or sought to make his own choice of direction. But now the Lord says to him, come, lift up your eyes and look. And he repeats the promises that he made back in chapter 12, verse 7, um, in verse 15 and 16. For all the land that you see I will give you, and to your offspring forever, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. It is an amazing repeat of the promise that he has already received back in chapter 12, verse 2. And here in verse 17... God does an interesting thing with Abraham. He gives him a command. Promises always, almost always seem to be followed with a command. And in verse 17, God says, Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Why does God command this? Why does God say, take a survey of the land? Go and have a look at it all. The thing is that Abraham will never see the possession of the land in his own lifetime. He will never see it. It is a promise for his future descendants. But he is to go and to walk through it and to to see it, to hear it, to smell it, to touch it, to experience it. uh, And all the time remember the promises of God. And it's just like God wants to uh, to make a promise, but then to give something tangible To impress upon Abraham that promise. The truth of that promise. We do similar things today, don't we? What are the tangible things that we do to remind ourselves of the promises of God? We baptize believers and their children. And we take the Lord's Supper together. These sacraments are tangible expressions of God's promises to us that we are reminded of as we gather in assembly 
and we see someone baptized, by the way, uh, don't ever think that a baptism by yourself uh, in a river somewhere is adequate. It, baptism must take place in the community where we all see the promises of God being enacted. And we all gather together with, and take the bread and wine together, not just isolated in our houses. Something tangible and real together that impresses upon us the promises of God. We are called to live by faith, not by sight. We have the death of Jesus on our behalf that deals with the penalty and power of sin. We are given the promises about future glory when he comes. And to help us in this, he gives us the bread and the wine and the water uh, to remind us and get those promises embedded into our souls. I love the fact that God wants to walk with his people and to continually remind them of the promises that he has made and to give them signs to help them on the way as we trust. And I just ask this morning as we finish, is that your life? Uh, are you walking with God? Are you hearing the promises of God? Are you finding them in the book? Are you resting upon them? Uh, are you hearing them as we share fellowship with one another? It's notable that this chapter begins with wor- uh, and ends with worship. Verse 18, so Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. This is where it starts and what it continues in, the life with God. It starts and continues with worship. So give yourself to worship. Give yourself privately to worship. Give yourself to worship in your homes with your children. Give yourself to worship in the church and let's see what God will do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Again, thank you for this wonderful story of restoration of Abraham. Thank you for your faithfulness to your people. Even when your people are unfaithful to you, remind us again of the promises of the gospel that in Christ there is forgiveness of sins. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.